And we had the great privilege of having Zach Hicks uh, share with us. And uh, he's here to share with us this morning again. Now, Zach wears many different hats. Uh, we sing some of the songs that he's written himself uh, here as a church, congregational songs. And he's led um, music for many different churches through the years. Uh, Zach also uh, has written books on the topics of, of music, a great book called The Worship Pastor. And he is also a teacher in the sense that he teaches at different seminaries uh, in different places to talk about what it's like uh, to lead music, the theology of music. Uh, he's very learned, great uh, mind on this topic. So I encourage you to check out the literature that he has written at some point. And also, Zach is a pastor. And uh, that also is uh, what he is in the current phase of his life. Uh, and it's funny, I mean, I've kind of followed Zach through the years. Uh, first, he worked at the Denver Seminary Bookstore, and then I worked at the Denver Seminary Bookstore right afterwards. He worked at a church called Rocky Mountain Presbyterian Church, and I followed him to work at that church right after he was done working at that church. And uh, I guess I didn't get the memo, Zach, that you decided to grow out your hair, and I'm following you in that too, I guess. I don't know if I'll get as long, lush as yours are, but... Uh, if you want to uh, know who takes a lot of credit for me being in the PCA, it's Zach Hicks. And uh, Zach, I, I mean, it's hard to, to look at you and just to, to tell this story, but um, we went to seminary together and we were in the same spiritual formation group. And uh, I was going through a really, a really tough time. It was a hard time just questioning what I was doing, being in seminary and um, deciding to be a pastor and uh, Zach probably doesn't even remember this, these moments, but uh, uh, we were, I think it was in your car. And uh, I'm, I'm an emotional guy, you know that. So I was probably crying at that point in time. And um, you just, you gave great words to me. And I'm very thankful for you. Sure, you're all those things, but more than that, you're my friend. And I'm thankful for your friendship. I'm thankful for what you've done in my life through the years. And uh, not just in learning, uh, on different topics, but also helping me to continue in this thing called ministry, which is not always easy. And uh, I guess I have led one way that you haven't in planning a church. And uh, that's what Zach is doing now. Uh, who thought, I thought I, you'd be doing it before I did. Uh, but uh, now he's taken that journey in Birmingham, Alabama uh, to plant a Presbyterian church there. And uh, thank you for taking the time to be with us this weekend and also bringing the word to us this morning. So let's give a round of applause for Zach Hicks being here this morning, sharing with us. I'm sorry to disappoint you on the front end. If any of you came expecting to hear a southern guy with a southern accent, like some sort of American zoo, where you get to like, watch this wild animal from the south, that's not me. When people ask me where I'm from, I live in Birmingham, Alabama, but I'm not from there. Uh, I'm from much different places and times, so I just have a, I think what is a normal accent a little bit, uh, and so that won't be that entertaining for you today. I want to uh, just give thanks for the hospitality of Dan and Aaron and your church in bringing me out. I want to give thanks to you for Calvin and Karen who hosted me and let me sleep in their house and rest well. John for picking me up from the airport, and Sharon for um, praying for me yesterday. That was a really meaningful prayer that you prayed for me and our church. 
And I just give thanks for our shared commitment to the gospel and sharing in the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Let's open our Bibles, if you've got them, or your bulletins to Job chapter 2, starting in verse 7. Hear now God's word. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard all of this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their clothes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do two things for us as you do every week in worship and in preaching. That you would show us our need for Jesus and that you give him to us. Amen. So in a way this morning, I'm going to preach on the whole book of Job. But have no fear, length of book does not equal length of sermon, okay? I know what you're thinking, church planter is starved for a big group of people to preach to. So he's going to preach forever, and that's not me. If you're used to preaching, that takes you through the text, verse by verse. Well, this sermon is going to take a little bit of a different approach, because especially with Old Testament stories and narratives, sometimes you need the whole journey to understand what it's saying. And I definitely believe that that's true of the book of Job. What we're going to do right now is acquaint or reacquaint ourselves with the whole book. And then we're going to follow a really specific path of application as it relates to what we typically call mission and evangelism around here. We often think of the book of Job as simply a story about suffering, so that we too all learn how to be many Job's in our lives and our contexts. But Job has a lot more going on than that. Let's orient ourselves first and then jump to a few key places in the book of Job that help unlock for us some deeper understanding. We could outline the book of Job like this. Chapters 1 to 3, Job is afflicted. And then chapters 4 through 37, the big bulk of the book, Job's friends respond and dialogue with him and give him advice. And then in the final chapters, chapters 32 through 42, 
God responds to Job, and Job is restored. That's a basic outline of the whole book. But let's look at one of those pivot points, one of those junctures, one of those moments between those three sections. Let's look with me first, if you've got your Bibles or just listen. Chapter 38, verses 1 through 3. As you're turning there now, one of Job's friends has just finished speaking. And God responds for the first time. What does God say when God gets the mic? Verse 2, chapter 38, verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And this is the scary part, what comes next for uh, anyone who ever hears from God. Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Okay. Now, turn with me to the end of the story, chapter 42, verse 7. This comes after Job has received the thundering clarity of God, putting him in his place. And Job responds in humility and trust. It's after all that. And then God says here in chapter 42, verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these word, words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, that's one of Job's friends, My anger burns against you. And your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. Let's just stop right there for a second. What we need to understand is that the book of Job is not only a story about suffering before God, the problem of evil, and those sorts of things. We are learning that embedded in Job is also a critique of Job's friends. We don't spend enough time thinking about that, actually. Yet Job's friends, their words, their theology, their advice, it fills the majority of these pages, actually. And here, at the climactic end of this mysterious and difficult book, we find God critiquing the work and the words of Job's friends. I'm going to ask you to hang on to that idea as we move forward. Job may be one of the best books for what we call missions and evangelism in this cultural moment. And here's two quick reasons why. First, it's all about suffering. And the more I spend time amongst people who don't know Jesus, or more likely down in the south where I'm from, people who are disconnecting from God and distancing themselves from the church and from faith, the more I think that one of our best evangelistic moves will be simply to learn how to love and minister to suffering people. Second, tucked into this wonderful book, actually, is a subtle but significant critique of a lot of the ways that you and I tend to get it wrong when it comes to reaching people in this cultural moment. I want the book of Job to teach us today what it means to be a friend, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a witness. You know, I live in a home where everyone's talking all the time. I have four kids, and it's just kind of a loud and chaotic place. After a long string of ministry where I confess I ignored my family quite a bit, God removed me from my position, and I had this kind of extended time where I didn't know what I was going to do next. And that was only a few years ago. It's what led to the call to church planting. But for nine months, I got reacquainted with my family. And the reacquaint 
acquainting went like this. I would sit around the dinner table and I'd watch as our family sort of talked to one another. And what was sort of occurring was someone would say something and then someone would kind of cut them off and say something on top. And it just went that way the whole time. Everyone was speaking over everyone else. And eventually about like a month or two into this whole like experiencing my family's inability to listen to one another. I kind of say, hey, everybody, we got we to gotta slow down for a second. And maybe we've got to learn something that mom and dad learned in therapy, which is how to listen well to one another. So we're going to practice this thing that our therapist calls active listening. And instead of just speaking over someone, we're going to let them finish their sentence. And then we're going to respond instead with a question that acknowledges that I heard you and help me to hear you more. And you know what I discovered? My family was kind of a microcosm of this cultural moment. I mean, think about, think about social media. Think about what it's designed to do. I mean, Facebook is a place, supposedly, where you post something, and then you have this thing called a reply, meaning I'm supposed to reply and interact with you. But we all know what social media turns into so many times is not a reply that's really interacting with much of what's being said, but in a, in a sense it's speaking over or speaking more loudly. I find that replies are just additional posts that are kind of like megaphones on top. And funny enough, like churches tend to aid and abet this way of communicating. We're in this wash of, of trying to reach our culture and talk to them. So we jump into the social media platforms and frenzy, and we're trying to figure out ways just to speak louder or speak more boldly and have a bigger megaphone and those sorts of things. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering, with all this output, with all this communication, I wonder what it would be like if the church did the shocking thing the unconventional thing in this cultural moment where everybody's speaking more loudly over each other. What if we spent way more time listening? Listening to people. Here are two good things that good listening does. One, in our minds, in our minds, good listening can often transform our perception of someone from being two-dimensional to three-dimensional. You see, every time we meet someone or encounter someone, we encounter their two-dimensional self. It's a natural instinct to make immediate evaluations and calculations in our head of what kind of person that they are. And we don't often know it, but we often get really specific. We start to imagine what their politics are, where, what their spending habits are, what they do in their leisure time, all from that first encounter. And conversation, right? We take in data and we draw conclusions. It's a natural social instinct. We'll draw these conclusions from their accent, the car that they drive, from the clothes that they wear or how much melanin they have, or from what they talk about and the way they talk about it. Here's what I've discovered. Rarely, rarely can I, in a first encounter or even a second or third encounter, understand them in much of anything beyond two dimensions. Rarely can that happen. And here's the negative side of that. When I see them in 2D, I simplify and therefore distort who they really are. I don't really know them. 
I've yet to encounter their three-dimensional self. But when I do encounter their three-dimensional self, I, I always, always, always find myself having made some mistake, some miscalculation in judgment. When they turn 3D, they complexify. They, well, become more human. And social media, interestingly, is a place where it's very hard to encounter people in their three dimensions. It's actually built for two-dimensional fellowship, we could say. Our current modes of interaction and our current pace of communication, the speed with which we communicate with one another in society, has created a context where a lot more people are encountering, uh, encountering others in two-dimensionality. And this has consequences for mission and evangelism. And again, the first point is that good listening helps transform the person in front of us from two to three dimensions. Second point, when we finally see someone as three-dimensional, in other words, when they're listening well, when we're listening well, that extra third dimension that often comes into focus is actually often their suffering. Job is one of those books of wisdom, but most commentators on this book will tell you that Job is actually a kind of anti-wisdom. Other books of the Bible that we classify as wisdom books, like Proverbs or even Ecclesiastes, tend to take on the characteristics of what's been stylized as ancient wisdom literature. Whether or not you're familiar with the Bible, maybe you've taken a, a world literature class or an ancient lit class. You have some faint memory of those ancient Near Eastern or ancient Greek bits of wisdom sounding like short, pithy sayings that offer decent advice for you to live the good life. Sayings like this from our Bible, Proverbs 17, 13. If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. Or Proverbs 19, 3. A man's folly brings his way to ruin. Proverbs such as the biblical ones really are true most of the time. They're good advice. They're good wisdom because that's what wisdom is. Things that are generally true most of the time. Wisdom books like this often read like little formulas. They often speak, and here it is, in two-dimensional terms. Behave well and good things will happen to you. Behave bad and bad things will happen to you. And though that's often true, in steps the book of Job, the anti-wisdom wisdom book, where a guy behaves well and bad things happen to him. This is actually one of the predominant messages of the whole book, right? And it just might be its point. Sometimes the suffering and the pain of this life in the face of a good and all-powerful God confounds all our usual categories. It just doesn't make sense. Sometimes suffering, as we experience it, is just unfair. And Job exists to remind us of the failure of conventional wisdom, pat answers, and simple solutions. Our lives are often too complex for slogans, for bumper stickers, and those terrible, horribly untrue phrases that are at least plastered around all the gyms that I work out at, such as, there's no such thing as failure, only learning experiences, right? As I was saying before, we're at this cultural moment where 
just as there's been a, a failure of pat answers to the question of suffering, so there's been a kind of failure of easy, formulaic Christianity. Christianity that tends to lean more Proverbs, a little bit less, more Job. More simplified, easy answers, less messy and incomplete answers. You know, there wasn't a time in America maybe where that worked, but I'm sensing that time has passed. I just also sense a growing number of Job's out there too, in my community and your community. A growing number of sufferers for whom the simple and simplistic ways that Christianity often gets offered just doesn't work. Whether it's because Christianity is too tangled in politics or too uncaring in the face of real social issues or too ignorant of science or too moralistic or behavior policy or too reactive in denouncing before truly listening or too motivated from fear that tends to crowd out instincts of love and moving toward, right? And that's why it's actually Job's friends that interests me. A couple of years ago, I was at a pastor's retreat, and the speaker pointed out from this text something funny, but mostly painful. When Job's life fell apart, his friends came around, right? That's what we just read. And here's what the text says in verse 13. Job's friends sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. The speaker commented at this point, the problem with Job's friends is that they eventually opened their mouth. (laughs) And that's what the rest of this book unfolds, actually, is their very mouthy response, their very Proverbs-like response, I might add, as to just why it is that Job is suffering as though they're speaking for God. Hmm. Mouthy response as though I'm speaking for God. I have to confess, I resemble that remark. And don't get me wrong, the scriptures are clear, right? The Bible itself is a communicative document that demands communication. And at the center of this Bible is its main message, which it calls the good news. And news must be spoken, as hopefully I'm going to be doing for you now. But it seems in this day and age more than ever. People need to feel seen and heard before they will ever listen to any news that you're giving to them. And Job says as much. Some of you may be thinking that I'm stretching the text with all this conversation about wisdom literature and the critique of Job's friends. But Job offers this very critique of his friends in chapter 13 verse 5. Listen to what he says. He says to his friends, if only you would be altogether silent For you, that would be wisdom. Mm. I wonder if it would have been different for Job if his friends had just sat there and wept with him and then sat there some more. And then sat there some more. I wonder if Job's friends could have sat there long enough so that Job could move in their eyes from being two-dimensional to three-dimensional. In the same way, I wonder if it might be different for the church if in this age of constant talk and communication, if we took the posture of drawing near, listening well, 
and weeping with those who weep. You know, curiosity is a wonderful virtue for the Christian, serious about reaching people for Jesus in our present age. At least that's what Ted Lasso teaches us, right? Asking questions in a non-judgmental, empathetic way may be one of the most important parts of the evangelistic process that many of us have forgotten. The lost art of Jesus, actually. The lost art of listening well enough to find the point of emotional resonance and understanding. The ache that disables them, touching the ache that cripples you. Asking questions often helps you navigate the windy path from the bristly surface of someone to the deep chambers of their heart, where often their suffering resides. Asking questions is actually the path that Job's friends didn't take. When they opened their mouth, they began talking at Job, over Job. Interestingly, and this may be painful for us to hear, they began using their Bible knowledge to put Job in his place. Or in the spirit of what Christians say they often do today, I'm just giving you the truth in love, man. But notice what all this conventional wisdom did. It only served to confuse and confound Job, to drive him away. In many of my conversations with non-Christians, ex-Christians, or people on this borderline of faith, this is what I often find going on. Oftentimes when you and I lack patience and curiosity, we are in effect taking a person's three-dimensional problems and trying to shove them back into a two-dimensional space and it doesn't fit. And the discomfort for them of that force fit often drives them away from you and away from God. Curiosity is a form of God-shaped love because it says, I will come beside you and sit with you in this mess. And isn't that precisely what God's love took the form as in Jesus Christ taking on flesh? The problem with Job's friends was that they began speaking for God instead of letting God be God. They transgressed the boundary between creature and creator Many times in our efforts to communicate the love of Jesus Christ to someone else, we transgress this same boundary. We let anxiety and impatience of wanting people to change, wanting people to get unstuck, force us into the false belief that I am responsible to fix them. How many times have you and I shared Jesus from that anxious place? Of course, we don't say it like this, but our actions betray deep down that I am responsible for this person's salvation, right? Just like Job's friends were so sure that they spoke for God, that they were responsible to lead Job to the truth. But fixing people is above our pay grade, right? It's God who does the changing. It's God who does the saving, right? And yet somehow there comes the moment where we get impatient with God's timing. And we act as though all that stuff about God doing all the work in salvation is bogus. For you theology nerds, we become functional Arminians, functional Pelagians. And 
Sometimes for the hurting person, for the person with tons of questions and tons of doubts, when we speak too soon like Job's friends, we force their 3D problems into that impossible 2D space. And the pain and the discomfort of that force fit is so strong, the pressure in that confined space is so great that they burst out away from you, away from the church, and away from God. They're like a ketchup bottle that's squeezed so hard that the lid finally pops open and they're splattered over the walls of the room. I want to be clear. For the Christian, there eventually comes a time to speak, right? To clearly offer the words of life. To tell of the comfort, love, satisfaction, and wholeness found in Christ and in Christ alone. I don't think... I don't think what's attributed to St. Francis is right. Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. It's always necessary to use words. To quote the Apostle Paul, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So the urgent question for us, the one that you're asking and I'm asking is, when? When am I supposed to finally speak? And I'm going to give you a very dissatisfying answer. Only the Spirit knows. But the Spirit will guide and lead you. As you're yielded, as you're dependent, as you're non-anxious, and as you're prayerful, and as you're faithful to sit there in that kind of two-way listening Listening to the person in front of you that you love. And listening to the spirit through his word. And through being present before the Lord. This ministry of listening. This ministry of curiosity we could call it. The ministry of just sitting there with someone. Inhabiting that three dimensional space with them. It is I think a deeply Christian thing. And here's why. It's exactly what God's love looks like right. When God the Son became incarnate when Jesus took on flesh he showed his willingness to become like Job's friends at least when they started out to plop down with us in the dirt of our suffering the God who actually knew everything about us who already saw us in three dimensions he didn't despise drawing near looking us in the eyes and asking us questions questions like these actually and these aren't my questions I'm going to quote the questions of Jesus that he uses throughout the Gospels why are you so afraid what has you worried do you want to be healed what is it that you want what do you want me to do for you why is your heart so hard do you want to get well maybe some of you are actually hearing Jesus ask that question of you right now in your heart When God took on flesh, when God became a human being, he proved himself to be the kind of God committed to listening, 
to just sitting there, to not saying anything. There's a particular moment in the life of Jesus, the God-man, that is the archetype of this kind of ministry. The ministry of just sitting there and not saying anything. Do you know what it is? It's his crucifixion. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah described the crucifixion in these words. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The gospel writers pick up on Isaiah's observation when they recount what they saw on that Good Friday. Mark, for instance, says that the high priest interrogated Jesus and finally said, probably out of exasperation, have you no answer to make? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer, Mark says. You know, there were many reasons why Jesus was silent that day. But I've read enough Bible to know that this is true. Jesus was silent at his crucifixion because he was busy listening to you. And trust me, I'm not just trying to give you some cool poetic devotional talk here. Jesus was quiet because he was busy listening to you, sitting with you in your pain, seeing you, looking you in the eyes. He wasn't going to talk. He wasn't going to squirm out of his crucifixion. He was going to sit there and he was quiet because when he heard your pain, your pain, he was so moved by it that he committed to himself to do, doing something about it. Nothing was going to stop him from going to that cross for you. His ministry of just sitting there moved into action. He was so moved by your burden, your problem, your suffering, that he said, I need to take that on. I need to bear it with them. I need to bear it for them. You know, no one needs friends like the friends of Job. But everyone needs friends like the friend of sinners. And maybe, just maybe, sinners loved and befriended by Jesus, a.k.a. the church, a.k.a. you and me, will be shaped by God's grace into the kinds of people confident enough in who Jesus is to have a joyful, gentle, unflinching, gracious ministry as well. But even if we aren't, praise God. That Jesus is committed to just sitting there, listening, seeing us, and hearing us. Amen.